J.T. Crowley is talking books. On this show, you'll hear from emerging talent and seasoned veterans from around the world. Hello, I'm J.T. Crowley, and today on my show, I have the great privilege of talking to Sean Pogue from Portland, Maine in the U.S. about his historical fiction trilogy series, The Arthurian Age. So all you historical fiction buffs out there, sit up and pay attention because these books are for you. Today, Sean has published two books in the series, The Retreat to Avalon and The Strife of Camlan. The third book, which is actually the prequel to the whole series, Three Wicked Revelations, is due out shortly. Sean grew up moving around all over the place. And when he left high school, like most of us, he was unsure as to what to do with the rest of his life. He joined the US Army, serving in the military police. He worked in law enforcement, field training, and undercover drug investigations. His duties took him to Germany, Honduras, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Cuba, He also served as a police officer in Florida, SWAT officer and gang investigator. And just to complete this menagerie of jobs, everybody, because he sure had a few of them, he returned as a reservist to the army and has carried out a whole host of mission duties there. And he's been a reservist for quite a time. So let's invite Sean onto the show so he can talk about himself and his books. Now, Sean, before we get started, um, you know, open the pages to this mammoth epic books of yours, can you tell everyone a little bit about yourself and why this fixation with historical facts, fictions that led to these series? Well, you you did a pretty good job describing a good chunk of my life, Um, so... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> getting getting towards the historical fiction side um i've always been fascinated by the more obscure eras of history you know like the uh, the so-called dark ages of britain archaic greece and the greek dark ages uh sumerians hittites indo-european culture you know things we don't know a lot about and it may be related to my past as an investigator but i like putting together the clues that we have and to get a plausible path from A to B. And that's part of how the retreat to Avalon came about. Ah, well, let's open that book, the retreat to Avalon. This is the first book here, everybody. Now you take us to the fifth century AD in Britain and across the 12 chapters that are masterfully written, everybody. Yes, there are facts about, um, you know, precise details, uh, which you would expect in the book of this quality. And so it's vital, but yet you cunningly tell a fictional story around Britain's struggles with unmerciful invaders, Rome's hold on its empire showing signs of falling apart, and the last great Roman emperor looking to the high king, Arthur, for support. But there, you know, those within the realm who are weary of another war. So Arthur doesn't have it all his way here, everybody. And so Arthur's position at times can be quite delicate. Garwain, a young warrior craving fame and position, features predominantly in the book. Of course, in mythology, he was known as the Green Knight that sat around King Arthur's round table. Now, this is a staggering story. How did you go about bringing this epic story to print? And I think the comprehensive appendage outlining people, locations and odd terms adds some authenticity to the book. Was that intentional? It was. Um, we're, We're talking about a really distant time and... Even though you'll see little bits and pieces of that time in today's world, a lot of people, uh, I'll put the appendix there to kind of give people a place to f- refer to. So if they're, you know, where is this location? 
it'll say what it's called today. Or if they're having trouble keeping track of the different characters, uh, it'll give a little information uh, about them and where the historical or legendary person came from. So, you know, similar to learning that the Iliad may have been based loosely on actual events and people about Troy, I looked for the potential history behind the legendary people and events related to Arthurian legend. And, uh, you know, I have, I've leaned heavily on researchers before me. So for the people who were curious, I wanted them to have an easy place to kind of see some of the background behind the story. And yeah. as far as, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. I, know. I think your research is phenomenal. It really is, everybody. It's, I mean, I can't claim it to be my research any more than I read widely and put together the research of a lot of other people. And um, and in some cases, I've, I've kind of, I believe I've kind of taken ideas that I've found and was able to put them together in perhaps ways that other people hadn't thought of, uh, which is really fun. That's one of the things that really interests me about this project and is that uh, investigative sleuthing. So designing this book, um, the first book, and the reason why the first book kind of starts right in the beginning at Arthur already being king and goes forward from there is I had, I intended to take uh, the research of Jeffrey Ash, who is, it was a, uh, a prominent British historian and he, his research was the basis behind this story. And I wanted to get to the core of some of the events that he talked about. And I wanted to find out how it could go from, you know, point A to point Z, Z, and put those, put those linkages together. So that's where, that's why the book starts there. And I was actually, uh, the reason why it's now a trilogy is my publisher actually asked me to turn it into a trilogy. So that's why the third book is actually going to be a prequel. Mm. Sometimes the publishers are right. <laughs> now, when I look at chapter two and three, Sean, I was fascinated to see that the storyline within this section of the book is built upon a game, a primitive game of rugby involving hundreds of men making up village teams chasing and fighting after a wooden ball referred to as the cryopan. Of course, a lot of prestige is attached to sporting events like this with fierce rivalry, be it at the heart of the game. Pride was at stake, and Garwain knew this. Garwain's father has returned, Gear, back to the hall, the village from Old Cult. And he's got some worrying news is on the horizon. And a council meeting to talk about forthcoming issues is called. They are being dragged into a conflict that is none of their business, but they will do their duty, he says. Questions are asked of Guer. Why are we getting involved in wars and battles that we do not threaten us and are not on our shores? the Saxons, the Pits. Sean, what's the overriding storyline of these two chapters? Who is Rigatamus and the Vesey? Well, the Rigatamus is Arthur, and Rigatamus was a Britonic term that meant highest king. That becomes Riothamus when it gets translated to Latin, where that term is known in some Roman records that we have um, because most of the Britons would have spoken uh, Britonic, which was a Celtic language. They would have most likely referred to him as Rigotanus. But when you get over to Gaul and France, that area, it was still much more Romanized. So they would have probably said it something more like Riothanus. The Vesey, that is a term at the time that's closer to what they would have said than Visigoth, which is how we know the Germanic tribes that 
was was uh, taking over Spain and France at that time. But so storyline, chapter... no, no, that? no. So that's as basically. But the storyline of the uh, the game I found absolutely fascinating. Well, one of the things I wanted to do with the book is is immerse people in the Dark Ages, or this, this is what they call the Dark Ages, but this time period that a lot of people don't know about. It wasn't plate armor and tall towers. It was chain armor, chain mail, and wooden castles on hilltop uh, fortresses. And and they the, the Korea Pen game is something that was likely played around that time. There was, uh, it was old versions of what became eventually things like soccer and rugby and things like that, uh, football. And, um, it, there was variations of it in Wales and, and, uh, Scotland. And so I wanted to use it as an opportunity to kind of, uh, bring out a little more detail about Gowan and, develop him and show that okay he's he's got some potential here as a leader um now i didn't tell you this but where i come from uh, there's a little village well it's a small town called ashbourne and on shrove choose shrove choosebury everybody there is a football game and it involves hundreds of people there are those that go in the upper team, those in the lower team. And it's all about fighting and chasing for the ball, which is just tossed into the main arena. And it lasts for hours. And the winners are those who actually manage to find the ball and get it, drag it up to their side of the town. So when I saw this, it reminded me so much of the game that we have in Ashbourne on Shrove Tuesday. All the shops have to get boarded up because there's <laughs> hundreds of people going round chasing a ball. <laughs> That's exactly what that came from. And it is. It, when you look at the history of that game, it went back to medieval time. That's why I thought I'd bring it up, everybody. <laughs> full of useless I'm full of useless information. But there you go. Sean, let's continue to give the audience a glimpse into this book of yours. So let's go to chapter seven. You say this is where the adventure really begins, where Garwin begins to establish himself to Arthur and where he begins to second guess his first impressions, such as who is responsible for the ambush in the woods on the way to Glastonbury. Plus, you start to tell us about Arthur, you know, who is able to gather such a huge army of 12,000 and ship them to Gorn. And that must have been one heck of an event back in those days. Garwain is given a task to do, personally given from the High King Arthur himself, who he meets in the hall. He's tasked with delivering two young princes from Letavia back to their homeland, having been sent to Arthur's care by their mother when they were very young to avoid being killed. Plus being tasked with being responsible for delivering a message to Arthur's mother, Yegona, and informing Gwenin to send the fleet. For me, the events going on here are captivating. Would you care to tell us a little bit more about these details, the storylines here, the scenery, the history? What's going on here, Sean? This was um, this where the reader gets to really meet Arthur for the first time. They do. Um, and it kind of establishes a little bit of his character and his motivations for why this is happening. Um, the the story of the uh, princes from uh, Latavia, they are they're there to link some of the legends of Arthur that happened in, in Brittany, which is what Latavia, uh, Latavia becomes. And there are linkages between those, those two uh, princes actually had been brought over to Britain in roughly this time period. 
in the care of uh, some of the Britons because of what was going on over in Brittany. And so um, I take these little snippets of actual history and legend, and I I start stringing them together, and it actually surprised me how easy it was to line these storylines up. So then, you know, Melos, uh, he he's an interesting, legendary, and potentially historical character, and he is introduced in this because he's going to be a bit of an important character in book two. Then uh, going to Dentagel, uh, Tintagel, that lets me kind of introduce some of the complications in Arthur's life, such as his mother, and also links that bit of Arthurian legend to to the story. Uh, it just gives you a little glimpse of, okay, there's something in the background here. And uh, more about that is definitely going to come out in the third book, the, the prequel. So then, oh, and of course, uh, Gwenwyn leading the uh, ships. I had to find, I had to come up with a plausible idea of how in this time period, somebody would move 12,000 soldiers from Britain to France. And we have this record of from the from Roman records of Riothamus, who came by way of ocean to uh, Bourges in France with 12,000 troops. So we know that this happened. There's some disagreement about you know what it really means what they were saying but is if you follow what they say he came by way of ocean then somehow there were ships involved so this is the beginning of how i uh, begin describing how that occurred ah i wondered how now you know mm. <laughs> uh, when i look at the book sean i agree with you chapter 9 to 11 are quite in depth these chapters are but it's where, you know, this is where the war, as you put it, begins in earnest. You reveal the details of the campaign and those involved. And of course, these events are predominantly historical events and the characters are historical people. This is the part of the book that is central to historian Gregory Asher's thesis. That the later legends of King Arthur stem from these pivotal events. Talk to us, Sean, about the people and the events unfolding here in this part of the book. And who is Geoffrey Ash? Well, Geoffrey Ash, um, he's, as I said, he was a uh, prominent British historian. He passed away last year. And he, um, he was actually given the MBE by the queen for his accomplishments. And the research that he did pointed towards looking at the oldest records that we have. Everybody is familiar with the King Arthur from the romances, the French romances that came out of the later Middle Ages. Uh, Lancelot, the, um, the betrayal of Guinevere, the Grail, things like that. But that doesn't really feature in the original Welsh legends and the, in the actual history behind those legends. And I wanted to really bring out into the story and, 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 and dig into how those, where those stories came from and how they could have some seed of truth in history. So Jeffrey Ash, one of the things that he, that he showed was that in the earliest legends, Arthur is, said to have gone over and conquered France and the Roman Empire. And um, and that's where a lot of his fame came from. Now, things changed over time. And if, if you read Geoffrey Ash's book, The Discovery of King Arthur, he lays it out very clearly, um, a lot of the information that he used and how he came to this, to this theory, which I found entirely uh, compelling. And... Um, so in this part where we're going into the battle, there the historical parts that we know about 
I wanted they they just basically give a little bit of information on, on each, just enough to know okay a location and an event, but it doesn't necessarily say why or how. So one of the reasons I started writing this book, as I said, was I wanted to have an idea of how it got from the beginning to the end. What were the steps in between? So in order to write out this story, I had to say, okay, I had to look at how do you move 12,000 people? Where would they go? What kind of issues were there? For instance, there's the battle at uh, Namnitis, which that involves some more known historical events. Uh, Odoacre was a uh, a Germanic uh, warlord that is becomes involved in this. And the way things lined up in some of these historical records, you could, I was able to start connecting dots and all the way from Britain to, uh, the Loire Valley to Bourges to the battle at Diols and then the retreat to Avalon. And then I had to figure out, okay, how do we get back home? And so that's kind of how that whole process went. Ah, see, I told you, everybody, he does an awful lot of research to create these epic stories. They are mammoth books, fabulously written and highly captivating. Well, that's book one. As I said, there are three books, so let's go to book two. Sean, I'd like to move on to the second book, The Strife of Camelon. For I feel we've given the audience enough of a taster so we're going to move on. Now, Retreat to Avalon covers a period of a year, but the second book takes us on a journey over the next 20 years, which ultimately takes brings us to the battle, uh, the last battle, that is, of Arthur's reign. Historical and potentially historical events play a significant part in the eventual emergence of England and Wales as we know them now. The Britons were very often uncooperative, when it came to comprising, in, in actual fact, they were stubborn sometimes and difficult to manage. And those in authority struggled in Arthur's golden age to maintain some kind of cohesion, grudges and politics as usual getting in the way. Plus the Anglo-Saxons weren't exactly playing ball. Now these books clearly demonstrate your passion for this historical fiction area. Why did you choose in this second book to concentrate on historical people and events in a time period of 20 years? And do you think this book will capture the imagination of historical fiction buffs and spark more interest into the legends of Arthur? I certainly think so. But do you? No, oh, thank you. It's The Strife of Camelon is... It covers 20, 20 years because rather than focusing on the thesis of Jeffrey's, uh, you know, the battle at, in France, it's follows on to what happens after that. And there's two other battles that are, that are, that are key to this. And one of them is the battle of Mount Baden. And that's actually a, a known historical event. It's referred to in the only surviving written document we have from somebody who was probably contemporary with Arthur, and his name was Gildas. He was a monk. He's also a character in the book. Um, and then the strife of Camline is said to be Arthur's last battle. In the romances, it's all about uh, Mordred being his um, his son, incestuous son, it's a bit different in the early Welsh legends. They weren't said to be related. They weren't necessarily said to have even been fighting each other. They have a very cryptic uh, passage in a history by Nennius that says, this year, the strife of Camelon, in which Arthur and Modred uh, perished. So where I where we get some more clues, though, are from these older Welsh poems called the triads and um in these these poems we have little snippets of 
what you can tell are very old uh, clues in history. The uh, the bards and the druids had pretty much disappeared by this time, but the bardic tradition of telling history through song and verse, it continued for a long time. And it's probable that the triads or these these poems grouped in threes that describe events and people that because, you know, in order to pass on memory, uh, this mnemonic device makes sure that details go forward in time longer than they would when you don't have, you know, a society that writes down a lot. And so some of these clues that go into the strife of Camelon about how these how especially that last battle came about, it was really fascinating to kind of put those together. And so once again, we're we're following this chain of events that goes from the battles in France to this major battle at Baden, which is known to have been a crushing defeat for the Anglo-Saxons, to the Battle of Camelon, which is kind of considered the end of Arthur's Golden Age. And it's within less than a century that the Britons have really begin losing grasp of Britain. Fascinating. Isn't this book fascinating, everybody? Wait till we get into this one. Um, Let's open the book, Sean, and head to a selection of chapters that will give uh, the audience an overriding sense of what this book is about. First of all, chapters, as far as I can see, are all about routine, day-to-day planning strategies. So chapter four for me was interesting. I loved the sketch of the boat at the head of the um, of the chapter here. Here we find Garwain and his wife, Rianne, journeying him back home to Alt Clut via a boat's trip on a merchant's vessel with a young prince. And of course, travel in those days would have been very difficult and dangerous. So my question is, Sean, why is Garwain returning home? Where are you taking the the readers here? And what event is on the horizon? I don't want to spoil the event on the horizon because it's a big deal. Yeah, Alan, he travels south because there's a what could be considered a state event. Uh, the funeral of one of the most famous Britons that we know is actually a historical person, Ambrosius. And he is still technically a part of Arthur's uh, war band, but he's more trying to stay home and and lead his life with his family. He's very conflicted. Uh, Going home after this event Things change, and it changes the tra- trajectory of this path and of his family, and that brings him fully into dealing with the world of Arthur and the British kingdoms and concilium that are the the concilium is the collection of British kings that run southern Britain in the areas that used to be Roman. The uh, you know, we have these these old records of the Britons that they say that Arthur, with all the kings of Britain, fought these certain battles. Well, the uh, Britain was not one nation in, in this time. The Roman provinces of, you know, at the time there was four or five of them. And then when Roman left, they started breaking up. You know, for a time, certain areas would stay Roman, while other areas broke away and re- reverted very quickly back to their Britonic Celtic route uh, cultures. And so as we get into this time period the, uh, of Arthur, that process is pretty much completed. There's some Roman areas left, Romanesque, but um, it's the strife between the British kings and their tribes and this constant bickering and inability in the first book, when Gowan mates Arthur, he's reading something on a shield that says, I have, to, I have to search my memory, um, fighting singly, all are conquered. 
And it comes from uh, Tacitus, who was a, a Roman general who, during the invasions of Britain, he said that the the most difficult problem that the Romans had was that the uh, the British were ex- extremely hard to put down. But the fact that they would not join together to fight against Rome is the only reason why Rome was able to take Britain. Rome, Britain remained Romans, uh, remained Rome's most troublesome province throughout its entire history. But it was this inability of the Britons to unite that made them vulnerable to the Romans and then later to the Anglo-Saxons. Ah. And of course, the young prince does come back in story later on, everybody. But what he, what his role is, <laughs> go and buy the books and you'll find out. Now, Sean, chapter five to eight are about going, dealing and coming to terms with, you know, events that have happened. Hule is behind all the Scotty raids. He wants to teach Arthur a lesson. Will he return or follow Arthur to Gaul? Hmm. Wait and see, everybody. For me, chapter six brought this section of the book to the fore. But I have to say the sketch of a market with Roman style buildings in the background caught my eye. Briefly, uh, Sean, you know, fill the audience here with all the historical events and people and storylines that fill you know, these pages in this part of this mammoth book. Well, um, the drawing that you referred to is, um, I'm trying to remember the town name today. I think it might be Chester. Mm-hmm. And it was... At the time, it was one of the more populated towns that had remained. Uh, after the Romans left, most many of the uh, British towns depopulated. Uh, this was one that remained fairly uh, fairly populated and, and wealthy for some time. And so as aside from wanting to kind of show, you know, this is what this life looked like here and how they they took the old Roman forum and turned it into a market area. We know that happened. Uh, the description of the place where he meets the Bishop, that was an actual building and the description of what they found. I, you know, I was wondering why, you know, why was it designed this way? And so if you read the book, you'll see that it, that it kind of had a, that they used it for a certain purpose, which I thought was kind of an interesting approach. Very interesting. And, um, yeah. So, and the the events with Huil um, leading all these raids, there's actually in a town in uh, Wales called Ruthen. There is. There's a, there is. There's a stone. And we actually went there to look at it. We got a picture of it. It's still there. And it is tied to this story in a way that um, one of the one of the chapters actually has a picture of it. I think it might be eight. Yeah. Has a picture of it. And so I don't want to give it away, but no, it's don't give it away. There. <laughs> don't it's give it away. There. You can go and see it today. And there's a very interesting legend behind it. So I, you know, that's again, pulling all these different legends together into one coherent story is, is how we've got to that point. I wondered how you did that. Ah. Now, I have to say, Sean, the next section of the book, chapters 9 to 12, I found gripping. Gawain is in a new position in life, and you've created a sense that success is in the air as Arthur's golden age continues. Um, This must have been a very exciting part of the book for you to write. In chapter 9, you set the timeline 477 AD. Gawain and Rian have a a new family. A a new Saxon warlord appears on the horizon. Garwain, and only him, is called away from the lands Arthur has given him. Maglaconus, the prince, Garwain and Rian have travelled with on the merchant's vessel, turn out to be highly capable of fighting his own battles. So this young prince, I said, he does come back. He's very capable, everybody, but he's a very young prince. The kingdom at the Concilium playing down their wealth and exaggerating their misfortunes in Chapter 10. Hugh's execution 
Merlin's appearance at the Concilium's Council in Chapter 11. These are busy but fascinating chapters. These chapters, in my mind, are you setting the scene for what's about to come. Talk to us about them and what can the reader glean from them? What can the reader pick out between the pages here, Sean? Well, this is, in the beginning, this is leading up to the Battle of Mount Baden, which would, uh, which according to Gildas was the greatest battle of the Britain's time period, had the most effect against the, against Anglo-Saxons. In 477, the, the Anglo-Saxon king warlord, uh, Ella, is said to have arrived. So I start tying together his arrival and then this eventual chain of events that leads up to the Battle of Baden. So going on from there, um, what were some of the other questions you had asked? <laughs> Sorry. So I said, you know, these chapters are, you know, very busy and, uh, you know, fascinating. And it's to do with, um, I'm asking you, so that how do you set the scenes? What's about to come? There's something about to come right. down the line, but don't give it away too much. But just give us a glimpse of what's coming down the line. Well, aside from this bringing up this point of one of their greatest uh, victories, you also begin to see some of the seeds of where things are going to start falling apart. Really? And, and right. So one of the one of the events Gildas actually talks to you you're talking about Maglacunas. He is a historical person. He's actually Gildas is a monk who wrote this long letter as kind of a diatribe against the British rulers and how Britain was falling apart because of poor leadership. And he specifically mentions five uh, British kings as being the worst of the villains and describe some of the things they did. Maglacunas was one of them. And it wasn't necessarily because of what he was doing at that time, but for some of the things that he had done. So, and everything that I put in there is, is a interpretation of what Gildas said this boy, this prince became. Yeah. Sean, talk us through the battle of Mount Baden. You said it's an important battle, you know, in chapter 12. Um, and when you were writing this scene, did you become fully immersed in the unfolding events? You know, the character Modron is interesting here. Talk us through this battle without giving too much away. Well, Modron's, a, you know, he's known as Mordred in the romances he was he's thought to be a historical person because he does show up in some early records and legends and it does seem that he had some sort of leadership role and then falling out with arthur in the beginning this is kind of showing some of his some of what leads to that problem but also shows that that he is actually, you know, he's pretty clever. He's he's a good leader, and in in the old Welsh legends, they don't necessarily consider him a bad guy. They're about him in very positive manners. So it's um, you as through these chapters, as I'm kind of developing towards the final conflict, I'm kind of showing okay. I'm bringing in these different events and showing how these may have affected the situation. The Battle of Baden is it's known to have happened, but there's not very much that's known about it. We don't know for sure who led either side, but we have ideas. Um, I went with the ideas I thought most plausible. Locating the battle is one thing that a lot of people disagree on. There's many places that it could be. I chose a particular location based on very uh for for the most part because of of uh tactical strategic reasons. 
later in um, long after the events of these books, about 566, roughly, if I recall correctly, the uh, Anglo-Saxons take the three British cities. Uh, Cirencester? I may not pronounce that right. Cirencester. <laughs> Cirencester. Um, yes. Uh, Bath and one other one. There's three cities right in that region. And that kind of really is the beginning of Anglo-Saxon dominance in Britain. Well, Cirencester is right on the road that leads from the Anglo-Saxon regions of this time. And Baden is this is this uh, region that has some name recognitions kind of in that area. And there's an old, uh, old hill fort there that kind of commands that road. So the reason why I placed it there is because of what happens in the future and the strategic reasons of why it may, may have happened. Ah, now the next section, chapter 13 through to 16, uh, for me are epic, uh, detailed, explicit. And I'm going to say something here, which perhaps I shouldn't say, but I'm going to say it damn right gripping. Thank Lots you. of battle scenes. <laughs> well, I should have said that. I don't know, but I've said it. Uh, lots of battle scenes and all the blood and gore that rightly so is built into this narrative. I think this is you at your best. So you take the reader through all the inevitable conflicts. The tension is palpable. Would you agree with me here? And could you tell the audience what's in the storyline in this section of the book very briefly? This is soon after the Battle of Baden that this next very interesting uh, event occurs. I don't want to give it away. Don't give it away. I will say that it it has a legend. <laughs> it has a legendary, a very old legendary uh, story behind it that makes it seem that it it may have some truth to it. Uh, there's actually a place in Italy where there's a carving and it is the oldest known Arthurian story outside of Britain that was ever carved or put into any sort of uh, surviving uh, form. And uh, so this event kind of cascades what's going to happen down the road and eventually lead to the Battle of Camlin. There's some other interesting events that happened in the stories that people are familiar with. Uh, the final battle with Arthur and Mordred comes about because Mordred's trying to take over the kingdom and is his incestuous son. There may have been something to the, the issue of trying to usurp the kingdom. It might I, I played a bit more nuanced than that through this story, but there's a few events that actually are said in older Welsh legends that actually led to the Battle of Camlin, which the Britons, the Welsh call one of the three feudal battles of Britain reason for it. And it was, it was um, pretty much destroyed Britain as far as the Britons were concerned. So the, bringing up to this point in the battle it's it's got a lot of spoilers that i don't want to give away but give it away pretty don't much give it away <laughs> you want to know pretty what's much, happening here go buy the book everyone right. yeah pretty um, much every event is not something that i just invented it's taken from snippets of legend and put together chapter 17 wraps up the story and gives us a glimpse of the world ahead and hits at what can be expected in the third book did you deliberately set this chapter out in this fashion? I did. It because I knew I had to go in order to do this as a tri trilogy in order to tell the beginning of Arthur's story. After book 1, I had to go forward in time to finish that chap to finish that whole process before I could go back and say, okay, this is how we got up to the point of book 1. And it kind of shows the the fall of 
of Arthur's Golden Age. And actually, I used from um, Jeffrey Ash from one of his books. I used a feeling of, of the situation. And Jeffrey says in his book, King Arthur, Dream of a Golden Age, he says, despite its splendor, King Arthur's Golden Age is doomed. Like all others, it passes away. There is more here than nostalgia for a glory that no longer exists. There is grief for a glory actively destroyed. And I thought that was a perfect description of of the the story of Arthur. Can't disagree with that. Uh, Sean, what can people expect in the third book, Three Wicked Revelations? I understand it is a prequel of sorts, and it takes readers back to the years before Arthur with Britain's first High King, Vortigern, and on to Arthur's life to the point book one commences. Am I right? That's exactly right. So what briefly... actually goes to a bit before Arthur was born of the British High Kings after Rome left, a fellow named Vortigern, who may be known to some people. And Vortigern is castigated in later history as the man who opened the door to the Anglo-Saxon invasion. There's a bit more to it than that. And he may be, to a certain extent, unfairly criticized. He was kind of following Roman tradition and some of his decisions anyways. But I wanted to... There's not a lot of stories of Arthur out there that really follow the old legends and the history fairly faithfully as far as Vortigern and up through Arthur's time period. So I really wanted to get to some of these things and the arrival of Hengist and Vortigern speaking to him and, and what comes from that and how the how Arthur rises from those events. And my final question, Sean, is how significant is the mythological figure of Mirrodin? And I do apologize to anybody who's Welsh for my pronunciations here, but of course Mirrodin is Merlin throughout the books. You said it was challenging for you to write a magical character in such a realistic way. He's very much a background figure, but as we all know, he plays a very important part in his historical fiction writings of Arthur's legends, the Arthurian Age. Talk to us very briefly about the position you've got Merlin here. Merlin is a, in a they pronounce it Merlin, um, but, you know, I just say go with whatever sound <laughs> works for you. Um, Merlin is a fun, was a fun character for me to write. He, there's some very, there's a lot of discussion about whether it was real, how much he had to do with the Arthurian history. Um, the role that he plays could have actually been taken by anybody but it, it works extremely well for Merlin. And, you know, at the time they would have believed wholly in magic. I don't want to give away too much about him because he, he pops up throughout the books at different times. And he seems to know quite a bit. And trust me there, I actually have a logical reason for why he does everything. And uh, down the road, I'm thinking I might actually do a book just on his life that kind of shows all the background stuff that he was behind. So let's, you know, we've we've looked at the books here. You've hinted at what's in the third book. So are there any more books coming down the line? Now, I know you've put a book out recently, Hengist. Do you want to very, very briefly tell us what this book is about? Well, according to... Uh, early British records and Anglo-Saxon records, Hengist was the first of the Anglo-Saxon kings in Britain. And not of all Britain, but the first of the Anglo-Saxon kings of a small part of Britain. And uh, he's some he's oftentimes thought to be a myth, but there's some reason to suspect that maybe he actually was a real person. And J.R.R. Tolkien actually believed he was because 
in addition to the Finsburg fragment. And those two refer to a particular battle that this Hengist was involved in. And in the Tolkien's book, Finn and Hengist, he kind of describes and explains a lot of the background of this. And I was kind of surprised nobody had ever taken this and turned it into a story. It was a very interesting and I think plausible chain of events of what leads Hengist to Britain, where he eventually becomes the first Anglo-Saxon king and has all this conflict with Vortigern and Arthur and all the legends that come from that. So who do you see as your market for your books? You know, who would you like to see reading your books? Young, old, mature people? Who? Everybody. It's, um, I've had, you know, people of all ages, you know, kids, younger kids will have the hardest time with it because it's not written really as a children's book. It's more written for adults, but there's not a lot of graphic, uh, descriptions in it. Not no, you know, graphic sex at all. Uh, the, the battles, there's a little bit of graphic to it, but nothing, nothing extreme and um i think anybody who isn't is interested in an adventure story is going to enjoy it uh the political intrigue uh the historical or just arthurian legends i've one of my favorite um compliments i've received is people say that this not only seems like it could be real but it also still feels arthurian which to me that's really what i'm hoping for Fair enough. So where can people get your books from? They're avail- uh, those books are available on Amazon. And I think uh, you can get them through Barnes & Nobles and a lot of other uh, locations like that. There you go, everyone. Sean Pogue, thank you very, very much for talking to me today on my show, Talking Books. Sean Pogue, everybody. Thanks for having me. Oh, you're very, very welcome. I'm JT Crowley. Thanks for listening, watching, wherever you are in the world. So until next time, stay safe.